Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. As you turn, I will just say, as I'm looking at some of you, you're struggling. I, as I said that, three people had their mouth open yawning. And, and earlier I did too. I'm struggling as well. I thought about, as I was preparing to preach, an old preacher, I, I think it was D.A. Carson was interviewed and was asked about falling asleep in church. And he said he did fall asleep in church one Sunday. And as he fell asleep in church, he heard someone preaching and uh, that kind of woke him up. And then he realized he was the one preaching. <laughs> he fell asleep during his sermon. Um, that has never happened. And I hope it won't. If, if today, y'all need to stay alert so that if I fall asleep, you can, you can clear your throat and uh, we'll, we'll stay with it. Um, I want to bring up just, just by way of interest, before we get into the sermon, the passage that was just read for our gospel reading. Those Jews who were looking to accuse Jesus would not consider him as the Messiah. But if they only remembered that the Old Testament prophesying of the Messiah said, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the dead will live again. Those prophecies pointed to Christ and they refused. And I bring that up just because we're going to get there in the message about the Old Testament prophecies. Today, as we return to Acts 17, we'll read verses 1 through 9 and we'll consider today once again how the gospel was met with resistance and opposition by the enemies of the gospel. So if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word, Acts 17, we'll read verses 1 through 9. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from scriptures, from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, 
that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all creation, we come before you in prayer. We praise you and we give you worship for your good and wise providence by which you rule all things. We ask that you bless us now in the reading and the preaching of your word. We ask that you use it to accomplish the purpose whereunto you have sent it. We ask that you bring increase to the implanted and the watered seed of the gospel. We believe that we ask in accordance to your will because we ask in agreement with your word. Please hide this preacher behind the cross of Christ. It's in the name of our Savior we ask these things. Amen. We began to look at this passage last week. and So today we're, we're covering the, the continued verses, verses 6 through 9, and also kind of doing some cleanup of some things that I failed to mention. One thing that we don't need to overlook that I failed to mention last week is this. If you'll remember, we had arrived at a section of the book of Acts where the pronouns changed from they went here and there and they did this and that. The pronouns changed to we went here and there and did this and that. And we call this the we sections or the we passages because Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, had joined this missionary team. So it was the we sections because he was with them and they were together. But today in chapter 17, we have read in verse 1, now when they had traveled, no more we. Now, now Luke will later rejoin them, so we will have more we verses, we sections, but, but evidently Luke was left in Philippi to continue the work that was going on there. Remember, they left Philippi after a brutal beating. Paul and Silas were beaten brutally. But Luke was not, and apparently he was left there to continue the work that was going on in that church that had been planted in that place. So today's message, chapter 17, is not in the we sections of Acts, but Paul referred in this, uh, to this event, to the events of chapter 17. Paul referenced this when he wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica, to the Thessalonian church. So listen, if you would, to just a couple of verses from chapter 2 of that first epistle. Chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. But we, brethren, this is Paul speaking, but we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. 
We wanted to come, but Satan hindered us. And today I take the sermon title from this verse in 1 Thessalonians, Satan hindered us. Now, I know that we have recently as a church and, and as many of us as individuals have been studying about God's divine providence. And we know from our study and, and from the words of our confession that God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least. That is the doctrine of God's divine providence in short. And we all say amen to that. God governs all things. But we have to, as we come here and we see that Paul says we wanted to go back to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered us. What we have here is two truths that we have to understand well. We have to kind of hold them in tension as we come to this text. God is provident and Satan hindered us. So which of those is it, Paul? Yes, amen, both. God governs all things. And brothers and sisters, we dare not dismiss or discount that fact. God governs all things. And God uses means to do that. And that's where, the, that, that's where our understanding comes in. How are we to view the juxtaposition of human action and divine providence? How do we see that coming together? Jesus helps us to see this in Luke's gospel when he spoke of providential acts. And he says this, but woe to him by whom it comes. There are things that happen that are certainly under God's divine providence, but the one who is the means, the one by whom it comes, woe to him. So we never forget that God is provident and the actions of men here in this passage are evil. The things done were in the wise providence of God, but woe to them by whose hands these things were done. And this is how we see this. This is how we reconcile divine providence and the actions of men just in short. But there are a couple of truths here that we need to see these truths before us. Last week, we pointed out the the ministry, the gospel ministry of Paul. And we pointed to the fact that the gospel ministry always meets opposition. The gospel always has detractors. There are always those who work against, who work to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's firstly note that the efforts here in Acts 17, these efforts here in Thessalonica to stop the gospel, as we'll see as we work through this, those people might say, and we were successful. But what we know is their efforts did not stop the gospel. Their efforts did not 
say the success of the gospel and what God was doing. A church was planted at Thessalonica. There are many who believed in Jesus Christ. Our text here in Acts tells us that there were Jewish men, there were proselyte men, and there were some leading women who believed. And then as we see the letter to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians tells us about Gentiles who turned to God from serving idols, serving false gods. So in the end, the enemies of the gospel did not win. And in the end, the enemies of the gospel cannot win. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and against his gospel. Friends, we have read the back of the book. Jesus wins. And here's another thing. It's not even close. It's not even close. Jesus wins. The gospel cannot be stopped. There are always detractors. There are always enemies. There's always opposition. But the gospel cannot be stopped. In the second place, those who led this opposition, in verse 5, they are the Jews who became jealous and some wicked men from the marketplace. The Jews who became jealous and some wicked men from the marketplace. Let me just pause here. It's not in my notes, but earlier, Pastor Brent read in our law reading about the oppression and the enslaving of the Jews. And now here we read that the Jews are the oppressors, that the Jews are the ones who are the enemies of the gospel. The problem here is not a race problem. The problem with men hating is a human problem. It's a problem for all people those who are oppressed in the right circumstances will become oppressors. Here the Jews gathered some wicked men from the marketplace and opposed the gospel. These men were the ones who acted. They acted in opposition to the gospel. But as I read these verses from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul makes it clear that there was a driver, that there was a, if you will, an enemy behind the enemy. Paul says, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Well, Acts says it was the Jews and some wicked men, these jealous Jews and some wicked men. But Paul says it was Satan who hindered us. And this tells us that Satan was the force behind those jealous Jews and wicked men. Satan was the force in back of the events here at Thessalonica. But more than that, it leads us to a broader truth that behind every opposition of the gospel, behind every attack against the church of our Lord stands Satan. This in Acts 17 was not just a political maneuver. This is not just a legal assault. Now, it was a political maneuver and it was a legal assault, but that's not the whole of it. This is a satanic attack. And every attack against the gospel is a satanic attack. 
And when we think about this truth and when we think about how this truth plays out, how this applies to lives of men and women today, we realize that in this case, Satan used jealous Jews and wicked men to do his bidding, but often Satan recruits much closer to home. The truth of Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection has been questioned. It has been doubted. It has been outright denied. But so often Satan does not employ a mob of wicked men. He uses even your own voice. Sinner, Satan uses your own stubborn pride to attack the gospel. And it's an attack against the gospel and attack and an attack against your own best interests. Beloved, stop, stop Satan's attack today by running to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. Satan is in back of this attack. And we also see from this text in the next place, the tactics that were used, the tactics that were used in verse five, jealous Jews and wicked men formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. This is a riot, if you will. These, these men who formed a mob and set the city in an uproar came with accusations that Paul and Silas were upsetting the city. I hope you see that. The very accusation that was made, that was brought against Paul and Silas, this is what they were doing. These troublemakers accused the missionaries of being troublemakers. And they attacked the house of Jason. Now this is the place where Paul and Silas were staying, no doubt. And when Paul and Silas were not there, you might think, well, that would be the end of it. They're not here. They're gone. Apparently they had gotten wind of this and they had left. They're not here. They're gone. Let's disband our mob and go home. But no, this attack continued. The mob stayed on the attack. They attacked the house of Jason and dragged out Jason along with some others, these other new Christians, new believers. And what we have here is what I find to be strange and probably illegal. Strange and probably illegal because they brought Jason and the others before the authorities to bring charges against Paul and Silas. Somehow Jason and the others are being held responsible for the actions and the words of Paul and Silas. But that's what we have here. Verse 9 indicates not only did they bring them forward and make these accusations against Paul and Silas, but that they received a pledge from Jason and the others. Now this does not mean that Jason and the others said, I pledge my allegiance to this governmental authority. That's not the kind of pledge it is. Some translations, maybe your translation calls this a security. What we have here is what we might call in our day a bond or a guarantee. It's financial. 
Jason and these other Christians put up a financial promise that Paul and Silas would not return to the city. Now this was their tactics. Remember in Philippi there were beatings. Paul and Silas were beaten. Here, they didn't, they didn't break out the whips. There were no beatings, but this is what they did. They demanded a pledge, a security, a bond. The strategy is different, and, and we might even say that the strategy is perhaps more effective. Because this, this bond and this pledge that Paul and Silas would not return is probably... What Paul is speaking of when he says, I wanted to come, but we did not, we could not because Satan hindered us. Paul was hindered for return to, returning to Thessalonica. But remember, the gospel was not hindered. Paul was unable to return, but there was a church planted and there was a church that was growing in Thessalonica. Let us take a moment as we see Jason and these others dragged before the city authorities. Let us consider the accusations that were brought. What did the jealous Jews and the wicked men say about Paul and Silas? There are two sections, two titles under which I would like to consider this accusation. The first is the lie part. And the second is the kernel of truth. Because they're both here. There's a lie and there's a kernel of truth. But first, the lie. Verse 6 says that they said Paul and Silas have upset the world or turned the world upside down. And have come here also. Jason's welcomed them. And look at this. They act contrary to the decree of Caesar. This is nothing less than an accusation of treason, of terrorism, of subversion. This text is clear that these accusers were the ones setting the city in an uproar. But their accusations against Paul and Silas were intended to bring very serious consequences. What do you do? When someone commits treason, what do you do when there's a traitor? There are serious consequences, maybe even the death penalty. And that was the intent. We learn here that the enemies of the gospel, as they oppose the gospel, they are not bound by fairness, reasonableness, and they're not bound by the truth because this is a flat out lie. This is truly an evil act intended to stop the gospel preachers. And it was a lie. Now we said a few weeks ago as we looked at another lie that the best lie wears the robe of truth. The best lie is clothed in truth. The most effective lies may even be a great deal, maybe even mostly truth. This lie is no different. These men are traitors to Caesar. They were not. 
They serve another king. They did. They did serve another king. So we consider in the second place the kernel of truth in this accusation. Paul and Silas were accused, and we see it here, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So even this kernel of truth, even this kernel of truth, there is still intent to deceive. Paul and Silas did not say that there was another king who was a challenger to Caesar. Remember, this is, this is very close to the accusation that was brought against our Lord. This is very close to the accusation brought against Jesus. Remember what was written on the placard on the cross. King of the Jews. And the Jews were not happy with that. They wanted it to say, he claims to be the king of the Jews. But it was written, king of the Jews. And the Jews led Pilate to believe that Jesus and his followers were rebelling and challenging Rome. Jesus did not deny that he is a king, king of kings and lord of lords. But Jesus did say this to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Paraphrasing, if it were, things would be very different. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was not threatening the worldly kingdom of Caesar, the worldly kingdom of Rome. Now, without going into detail, what we're talking about here is this teaching of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. One kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and God rules and reigns directly in this spiritual kingdom. And the second kingdom, the physical realm, pop quiz, who reigns and rules there? God. Two kingdoms, God rules and reigns both. In one, he rules and reigns directly. In the other, he uses the means, he uses human authority. But it is no less God's rule and reign. It's just differently done. God rules and reigns in both kingdoms. One with his sovereign omnipotence and the other through what we call providence. This two kingdom teaching is important and we don't have time to cover it in great detail today, but it is very important. This is how Christians, this, this is how we can be citizens of an earthly kingdom, how we can hold public office, how we can serve in the armed forces, how we can even say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I'll finish it because you might need to hear it. And to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We Christians can say that and mean it because of this two kingdom teaching. And we still know that Jesus is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and he is our King and he is our Lord. And two kingdom theology is why Paul and Silas could say that Jesus is the king, but they were not threatening 
Caesar and his reign. This accusation has truth. There is another king. And his name is Jesus. Paul and Silas had been teaching about Jesus. They spent, remember, in the synagogue three Sabbaths working through, explaining, reasoning from Scripture. And verse 3 tells us Paul was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Paul's gospel, God's gospel, is this, the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews knew that, that there was a promise of a Messiah. That God had promised a Messiah from the Old Testament. They knew that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about a coming anointed one, the Christ. But they knew selectively. Some of you understand that very well. They knew selectively. They, they held to the messianic scriptures that, that played into their own ideals. And they ignored the scriptures that did not fit their narratives. They had those passages that were unreadable. We don't read that. That doesn't fit. So we ignore that. This is still a problem today for many. John Eady points out that if we misunderstand the prophecies concerning the Messiah, if you misunderstand the prophecies concerning the Messiah, then you will misapply those prophecies and you will miss the Messiah. If you misunderstand the prophecies, you misapply those things and you miss the Messiah. And this is exactly what the Jews had done. Some of them believed that a Messiah would come and would primarily be a teacher like unto Moses. And when you believe that the Christ is principally, principally a teacher, his work is predominantly to enlighten minds, then the cross is confusing. It's a stumbling block. And the best you can do is, is explain the cross as, as some insignificant, meaningless detail in the life of the teacher. That's the best you can do. And that denies who Jesus Christ is and it denies the gospel. Others, maybe the majority of the Jews in that day, interpreted the Hebrew prophecies of the Messiah as a coming temporal king, as a this-worldly king, the here-and-now kingdom. They wanted, because they expected a temporal king, they wanted, they looked for, they expected a military and political leader. Someone to overthrow their oppressors, their occupiers, Rome. 
Paul had to take these Jews through the scripture and show them that the biblical Christ, the scriptural Messiah, the only one who could be the Messiah of God must suffer and die and rise from the dead. He had to take them through and show them that. So let's just take a moment for our own edification. From Genesis, from the fall of man and, and from the sacrifice that was offered there in the garden, the bloody death of those animal sacrifices pictured and pointed to the fact that the Messiah must die as a substitute for sinners. Psalm 22 in the Old Testament prophesying of the Messiah says that his hands and feet would be pierced through. And this was fulfilled on Calvary's cruel cross. Psalm 22 says that his garments would be divided and that lots would be cast. They would gamble for his garments. And this is exactly what happened when Jesus hung on the cross and the soldiers cast lots for his garment. All the way from Exodus chapter 12, the lambs offered as sacrifices pointing to the Messiah were not to have any broken bones. And that pointed to the fact that the Messiah would have no broken bones. But on the cross in crucifixion, breaking the legs was almost always done. But Jesus did not have any broken bones. He gave up his spirit before they came to break his legs. And this fulfilled prophecy all the way from the Old Testament, all the way back in Exodus. Isaiah 53, known as the suffering servant prophecies. Isaiah 53 states, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Speaking of the Messiah, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. They expected a great leader that would be exalted, but that is not the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus was crucified there between two thieves. Fulfilling this prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures that he would be counted with, that he would be numbered with sinners, with the transgressors. Psalm 16 predicted that the Messiah would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would he seek corruption. And Jesus only spent what comes down to hours in the grave. A portion of Friday and Saturday and early Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. He did not, he was not abandoned to the grave, and he did not see corruption. Isaiah 53 also tells us that the suffering and the death of the Messiah is 
vicarious on behalf of those whom he came to save. It prophesies that the sins of all who would believe on the Messiah, our sins were laid on him on the cross when it says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on him. By his stripes we are healed. There are some who take this beautiful gospel and forgiveness of sin that is stated in this phrase, by his stripes we are healed. And they bring that down to this low point of saying by his stripes we can claim physical healing of our bodies. First of all, that's not what's being said. And second of all, we dare not trade the, the treasures, the jewels of the gospel, of the salvation of sinners for some temporary physical healing. Amen. By his stripes, our sin sickness is healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53 continues. Everyone has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. His death, his suffering is vicarious. And that is in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Beloved, the gospel that Paul preached was not something different than the Old Testament spoke of. It was exactly what the Old Testament spoke of. And it is still today good news for sinners. Jesus Christ died. He died for all those who would believe on Him. And He rose from the dead. He rose, He died to, He died for our salvation. And he rose as a testimony that his sacrifice for our sin was accepted by God. And he was raised from the dead. He was dead, but now he lives. And Ephesians tells us that, that you were dead. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And some of you here today are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation of sinners. There is no plan B. There is no other option. There, there is no other hope. It's this desperate. Other religions will say things like, you have to be good enough. You have, to, you have to live a life worthy. But every one of us who's lived more than a week, we know there's no hope there. There's no hope in that. Our only hope is that someone lived for us. 
that someone lived on our behalf. And then that someone died for us. Our only hope is this, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is what was hated. And it's still hated by so many. But beloved, I, I call you today. And with the authority of Scripture, command you today to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts. Lord, for those who know your saving power, for those for those who have tasted the great gift of your salvation, God, remind us of what a glorious Savior we have. As we hear the gospel again, let it bring us to worship. Let it bring us to praise. Let it bring us to serve you out of gratitude for what you have done for us. And God, we pray for those who are here who know that if they died today, they would go to hell. God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit and by your word that you would bring them to salvation, that you would do that work making a new creation, that the old would pass away That you would bring life where there is spiritual death. And God, we pray for those who are not here. Those, those who are our loved ones, our family, our friends, our neighbors, those who we work with, who are lost without Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would work, that you would save them. And we know, we know that you are not slack concerning your promises. We know that you will accomplish the work that you have begun. So we ask in accordance with your will that you would save the elect. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.